I think Jesus cleansed the temple that morning because he wanted to say to the people, God is more concerned with a, the broken religion of Israel, his people, than he was about the political oppression of Rome. Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Please get out your Bibles if you have one and uh, turn to uh, Mark chapter uh, 11. I see we have some guests. We're really glad you're here this morning. And we're studying through the Gospel of Mark, which is a biography of Jesus. And uh, we're looking at uh, that, let's see, Matthew, Mark, second book of the New Testament. And uh, we're at chapter 11. Here are two billboards that illustrate poor planning for us. <laughs> Although it's probably photoshopped, it's probably not real. Here's incomplete pa- planning. Two high school graduates are discussing their future college plans. And the first one says, I'm going into farming. It's what my father did, and it makes good money. And the second one asks, What type of farming? And he replied, uh, wheat, corn. I mean, he asked, wheat, corn, or peanuts? And the first young man replied, I don't know. There are so many fields to choose from. (laughs) There you (laughs) go. That's my first dad joke, Jamie. That's my first dad joke on a Sunday morning. So please don't leave. I don't have any others, all right? I would venture this morning that Jamie Cowan is the best planner in our church. If you ever want to go to Bush Gardens, or if you want a great vacation, take him along. He'll have a great plan for you, I promise. Now, Jamie, you shouldn't be insulted by me calling you a planner, because the premise that I'm going to tie these three little stories together is that Jesus is a planner. And uh, as Mark begins to talk about this last week of Jesus' life before his death and resurrection, I think we can see Jesus planning prowess at work, and I hope to show you that this morning. So let's, uh, let's jump in with Mark chapter 11, and I am going to suggest Jesus planned his entry into Jerusalem on this day. Chapter 11, verse 1, when they approached Jerusalem, that would be Jesus and his disciples at Bethage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, You will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it in or bring it. If someone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here right away. So they went and found a colt outside in the street tied by a door and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They answered them just as Jesus had said. And so they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. In Mark chapters 1 through 10, we have, Mark has talked about three years in the life of Jesus. 
Now from chapter 11 to the end of his biography, which I think is chapter 16, uh, we're just going to cover one week of Jesus' life, the very last week of Jesus' life. Uh, One thing that is clear, I think, in this passage is that Jesus planned his entry into Jerusalem. He secures a young donkey to ride on, tells his disciples where to find it and what to say if asked. And I will grant you that this all could be supernatural. Maybe the Spirit told Jesus about the donkey and and what to say. But I I think a more reasonable thought would be that Jesus has prearranged this plan. And so they're just following the prearranged plan that Jesus has made, and they're carrying it out. Up until this point, I think we could say that Jesus has prearranged the plan, but not everything that would happen on that day would have been something that he planned but something at the same time he would have known would have happened. So as he's marching into the city, we're, we're told that his disciples and, and just the, the throng of people, they gathered, they, threw their, they took off their outer tunics and they put them on the ground for Jesus to walk on, his donkey to walk on. They, they put palm branches or branches down for him to walk on. And, and they shouted and, and cried out Psalm 118, which says, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us. We pray, O oh Lord, O oh Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of David or the house of the Lord. So they are quoting Psalm 118 and maybe other Psalms as well. Jesus planned his entrance, but let me suggest a few reasons why he did that. One of them he did that was to fulfill prophecy, right? If we go back to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, there is a, a prophecy in Zechariah that the Messiah the anointed king would come riding to them on a donkey. So Jesus is fulfilling that prophecy. That's one of the reasons he planned it this way. Uh, he probably planned it this way so that he might have safety as he entered into the city. So he might safely enter the city. There was a word out in John chapter 11, verse 57, where the Pharisees were asking, if anybody sees him, let us know where it is, where he is. So the, the idea seems that, hey, as soon as we find out where Jesus is, we're going to arrest him. And so Jesus could have been coming, if he'd gone in secretly, he could have been seen and arrested. He chose a very visible public entrance into Jerusalem so that the religious leaders could not lift a finger against him. A third reason maybe he planned it this way was to clearly, publicly, unambiguously say to the world, I am the Messiah. And everybody understood that. All the crowds, all the leadership, when Jesus came riding into Jerusalem, that Passover on a donkey's colt, they understood what he was claiming. Or four, another reason might be that he was making a statement about the kind of kingdom that he was going to be king over, that he was establishing. He did not come in strutting with military prowess. He did not come in riding a white stallion as a military general would have. He came in riding a donkey, which was symbolic of humble peacemaking or a a humble peacemaking king. That was what he was seeking to... uh, to portray to the people. This is the, kind of, this is the kind of kingdom that I'm going to rule over is what he's saying. And finally, I think he did this and he planned it this way to provoke the opposition to precipitate his own execution on the appointed day. Little else could have made such or been such a catalyst to the opposing forces than what Jesus did with that bold proclamation. 
And now something had to be done, and it had to be done fast. And so they began to plan how to kill him. I think the takeaway for us of this would be, as we mentioned last week, that Jesus was crucified according to the predetermined plan of God. And this entrance into Jerusalem is just the outworking of God's predetermined plan uh, on the execution of his son. It also speaks, I think, to the reliability of the scripture as, as Jesus fulfilled Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Number two, Jesus planned his cleansing of the, table, uh, of the temple. So verse 11, it says, He went into Jerusalem and into the temple, and after looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now I'm going to skip verses 12 through 14. I'm going to come back to them on just a couple of words at the beginning. It says, the next day, and then verse 15, they came to Jerusalem and he went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now, folks, there was a stark difference between the actual events of this coming week and what the expectations were of the people that watched Jesus enter that day. I feel pretty certain that most of the people thought that they were on the cusp of Jesus launching a military attack against maybe the, the, the uh, military post there in Jerusalem, but they thought he was coming to be this military kind of king, and Jesus did not come for that. The difference between what would pan out and what they thought is striking. Instead, Jesus marches into the temple, and instead of a surprise attack on Rome, it's a surprise attack on the religious establishment. It probably should not have shocked them because three years earlier when Jesus began his ministry, he did the exact same thing. He bookend his ministry. At the beginning, he cleansed the temple. At the end, he cleansed uh, the temple. The Jews hoped for an attack against Rome. What they got instead was Jesus waging war against religion. Now, Mark is the only one Mark is the only one of the, of the biographers of Jesus that tells us that Jesus' attack on the temple, on the money changers, if you would, was not spontaneous, but it was planned. It was calculated, I believe, just as was his triumphal entry. Let me see if I can, can prove that point. In, in verse 11, we are told that on his arrival in Jerusalem, he went immediately to the temple. So he goes to the temple but it's late in the evening. He looks around and he decides not to do anything that night. Instead, he returns outside of Jerusalem to Bethany only to return in the morning to do what he does. Now, Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus, when he enters into the city, he, he, he weeps. He weeps over them. He weeps over what they become. And, and this is just my, just my thought, just my speculation. I didn't even do any research, so it might say otherwise somewhere. But I wonder if he didn't do his weeping in the temple when he got to the temple and saw once again what had it become. So, uh, but he returns outside uh, the city. He could have dealt with the money changers that night. He could have done everything he did the next morning. He could have done it that night, night but he chose not to. And I'm guessing here that Jesus planned it for the next morning for a specific, specific reason. And that reason was that it would have so much more impact 
the following morning when he did what he knew he needed to do during regular business hours. So returning the next day, the next morning, he went into the temple and he single-handedly purged it. Um, He took a, a, I, I think he took a whip, but he definitely went through the marketplace overturning the the money changers tables and the people selling doves and, and lambs and all of that. And um, somebody, somebody asked the question, how is it that one man could go into the temple and do this, right? And that's a, that's a fair question, I guess. But I think the answer is simply everyone's scared of Jesus. They're scared of Jesus because of his, his popularism with the people, right? I mean, the people loved him, but they were also scared of him because he's the guy that raises the dead. He's the guy that has done all kinds of things that no one else can do. So I imagine there's a little bit of fear on on their behalf and nobody touches him. And there's no doubt that Jesus is attacking the highest religious authorities at what is a most sensitive spot for them, their pocketbooks. Annas was the former high priest. Caiaphas is the high priest at the time of Jesus. But Annas is still the one calling the shots. He's the father-in-law to Caiaphas. And, uh, and surely they are running this corrupt operation. Rabbinical writings of the time call the marketplace the bazaars of the sons of Annas. So in other words, this is, this is Annas the high priest and Caiaphas. This is, this is their doing. There seems to be three, three indictments against the men in the temple of that day. And here's the first one. They turned the temple into a common marketplace into a common place of business. The outer court, the court of the Gentiles has become a shortcut, but it's not just a shortcut. If we go back and read the text, they're selling things. It's just a place of commerce. And I think one of the things that we need to realize is that the temple then is different than the temple today, right? The temple then was the building. The building actually was something extremely sacred, Uh, We no longer, the temple of God no longer is a building. We've talked about this a lot, but the temple of God is you and me. We are the temple together. The temple of God is here because we are here today. But you know, there's nothing any more sacred about our building than the oak tree out in Ethiopia where the church gathers on Sundays to worship. That place is just as much the temple of God as this place is because that's where the people of God meet. Buildings are no longer the temple of God. But in this day, the temple is something special. It's extremely special. The temple is the place where God dwells. And granted, you know, the psalmist tells us, I think David tells us that you can go to the deepest parts of the sea or the highest parts of the, uh, of the atmosphere and God will be there because God is everywhere. But there was a sense, a special sense in which God's presence, his spirit dwelt in that building. That building was sacred and they had turned it into a, just a place of commerce. And that's an indictment that Jesus raises against them. You know, one more thought on this before we move on. And I already commented on it earlier today, but remember when Jesus is meeting with the Samaritan woman and she says, Hey, you Jews say you have to worship in the temple. And, and we say it's out here or wherever it was that she was referring to. And Jesus says, hey, there's coming a day where it won't be there and it won't be here. It's going to be anywhere God's people are because God is looking for people to worship him in spirit and in truth. And I, I think the spirit is we worship from our inner man and in our hearts. And of course, truth is the truth of God's word. And so it doesn't matter where we are now. We 
can worship. Jesus said the day is coming. And by the way, the day is already here, right? That day is here where we worship in spirit and truth. So thank God for our facilities. Thank God that he's given us such a wonderful place to meet. But these places are only special because God's people meet here. The second indictment, they turned the temple not only into a place of commerce, but a place of thievery. Jesus calls it a den of thieves because they're not just doing commerce there, but they're ripping the people off. They had to exchange their money. If, if you and I go overseas and we, want, we have dollars, they won't spend in another country. So we have to exchange our dollars for whatever currency is being used in that place. Well, it's the same thing's true with the temple. You had to pay a temple tax at the Passover, and, uh, but you had to use temple coinage. So you had to change your money into temple money, and they would charge you an exorbitant uh, exchange rate for your temple tax. They also took, and in this commerce area, they would sell their sacrifices at extra, uh, extravagant or extraordinary prices. And furthermore, they did this, at least this is what we're told they did. You'd bring your lamb to sacrifice. It had to receive approval from the priest. They would say it doesn't pass. And so you can go over here and sell it to this guy at a discounted rate. And then you can go over here and buy, it, buy one that's approved over here for an exorbitant price. And then when you weren't looking, they would take your lamb and, and, and put it over there. So they were a den of thieves, and Jesus indicts them for this. And then the third thing he indicts them for is that they are keeping the Gentiles from coming to the temple to worship. And I think maybe in the mind of God, this last indictment is the most serious one. Uh, it goes all the way back to Isaiah, where Isaiah said, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring into my holy mountain and will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. That's what Jesus is referencing here. And so when God built the temple, there was an outer court for the Gentiles. It was an outer court for the people who weren't Jews. That was their place to come and worship God, the, the God of Israel, Yahweh, the one true God. They were to come there. They had turned the outer court of the Gentiles into a marketplace. And not just any marketplace, but a marketplace where they ripped you off. And, uh, and so Jesus is basically saying to them, you have cut out the Gentiles. You have cut out all the people from around the world that I wanted you to reach. You've cut them out, and Jesus rebukes them for that. In the, in the next years after the resurrection of Jesus, the Jews would really grapple with this question. Was Jesus just for the Jews, or was he for the Jews and the Gentiles? This is a big question, and there was a, a huge contingency of Jewish followers of Jesus who thought that Everybody else that was Gentile, they needed to become part of the Jewish community. They needed, to, they needed to subscribe to and keep the first covenant first and then add Jesus to it. In Acts chapter 15, the church has a council meeting. And the whole purpose of this council meeting is to decide basically this question. Is Jesus, are we going to make Gentile followers of Messiah Jesus, are we going to make them become Jews first? And of course, thank God, they, they recognized, though, that, that what Jesus was doing now was something new. You remember the parable of the new wineskins and the, uh, the, the new wine that Jesus taught? 
Jesus taught a story, and he said, um, he said, you don't put new wine in old wineskins because new wine ferments, it expands, and if you put it in a, in a already expanded wineskin, when it expands more, it'll break it. You'll lose the wine and the wineskins. So he said, new wine has to go in new wineskins. And so the new wine that Jesus was talking about was this new covenant that he was making in his blood. And he was, he was saying it's going to have different, it's not going to be within that Jewish wineskin. It's going to be in, in something in something new. And the church over the years, we've understood this better and better and better. And we understood that God's desire is for all the nations, all the nations of the world. The court of the Gentiles really has become the largest court, right? Because people from all over the world, they've now, they've now followed Jesus and they're part of that group of people. And thank God for all of that. Why did Jesus cleanse the temple this morning? Uh, here's, here's, I got two thoughts on this. The first one, I think, is the most important. This is why I think he did it. And again, this is just, Jimmy, this is my speculation. But, but I think I have the spirit, and I think there's weight to what I'm going to suggest to you. I, I think Jesus cleansed the temple that morning because he wanted to say to the people, God is more concerned with a, the broken religion of Israel, his people, than he was about the political oppression of Rome. I don't usually repeat myself, but that was a mouthful, so let me say it again. I think Jesus was trying to illustrate God's more concerned about your broken religion than he is about the oppression of, of Rome. He came to give us new hearts. He came to create a kingdom of new-hearted people and not necessarily rid the world of all the evil at this time. In fact, there's still a lot of evil in the world. And there's been a lot of evil over the, over the millennia since Jesus was here. He didn't come to rid the world of, of the evil. He came to create a kingdom of new hearted people that are, are like him. And I think he was saying to the Jews, God's more concerned about th this, this error amongst his people than he is amongst the oppression of this, uh, of this Gentile nation. And, and I hate to wade into this, but I think there's a very contextually valid application for us here. So bear with me. I believe that God is more concerned about the state of our hearts as his people than he is about the oppression we see rising in this nation in which we live. I want to say that again. I think God's more concerned about our hearts than he is about what's happening in our nation. And don't misunderstand, I think again, what's happening in our nation is saddening God. But, you know, we think Jesus wants to come and smite America. And maybe it's Jesus for, for abandoning biblical morality. Maybe Jesus wants to come and say something to us. Now, maybe he will smite America, like he smote uh, Edom and Egypt and Babylon and all these other Gentile nations, right? But I'm telling you, I believe that God is more concerned about our hearts as his people than he is about where Gentile unbelievers are. He, he's more concerned that we as followers of Jesus struggle with our lust and our greed and our materialism and our selfishness. He's more concerned that we deal with sin in our life than he is, you know, people who don't yet know him. And I think the application for this is that we think of Jesus coming in and riding his, his donkey to smite our nation. And again, maybe he will. But I think what we really ought to be looking at is our own hearts. Where are our hearts? Man, are we following Jesus with all of our hearts? Or would he come in and say, you have a bunch of dead religion here. 
You have a bunch of, you've turned my house, my people into a, a place of commerce. And I'm not, I'm not trying to say commerce, I'm trying to use it as an illustration. You, you're doing something with my people. You're, you're not being the people that I want you to be. So I think the, the, the application for us is, guys, let's always be looking at our own hearts. Always be looking at ourselves first as the people of God. Are we being like Jesus? Are we following in his footsteps? Are we acting like him and thinking like him and, and speaking like him? Jesus rode in to, uh, to smite the hypocrisy of his people and, um, and, and not Rome. And the second reason I think he did this is like the first thing that he did, the triumphal entry. I think he did this, that cleansing, to further precipitate a final conflict between him and the Jewish leadership. His hour had come. Remember how many times Jesus had said, my hour has not yet come? My hour has not yet come. Remember that? Yeah, you can't do anything. My hour has not yet come. But his hour has come. And so now he's just kind of stirring the pot to bring about his crucifixion. Verse 18, the chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching Whenever evening came, they would go out to the city. The leadership began to try to find, find ways to kill him. They were scared of the crowds. They were scared of what the crowds were doing, but would do. But they were trying to put Jesus to death. And that evening, after the cleansing of the temple and whatever teaching Jesus did, he returned outside of Bethany to where he had been staying. And that brings us to the third uh, little grouping here in, in the things we want to look at of Jesus, that Jesus planned. And now I've called this last one, Jesus planned his lesson plans. <laughs> Jesus, all you teachers, Jesus planned his lessons plans, right? Lesson plans. So I skip verses 12 and 14. Let's go back to them. So this is, Jesus has made his triumphal entry. He's gone and looked around the temple. He's gone back outside of, uh, of Jerusalem to Bethany. And now it's the next morning, the morning that he's going to cleanse the temple and he's heading into town. So verse 12, or into the city. The next day when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree with leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So on the way into town, Jesus is hungry. He sees a fig tree off in the distance full of leaves. He goes to look for fruit on it. Some figs, but he doesn't find any. And uh, Mark adds this comment that it wasn't the season for figs. But he doesn't find any figs on that fig, fig tree. So here's a perplex, perplexing question. Why did he look for figs out of season, right? Why did he look for, I mean, doesn't that, don't you ask yourself that? I ask myself that, right? Why does he look for figs when it's out of season? Well, some have suggested that there was such a thing as an early fig, that would come due before the season. F.F. Bruce points out that uh, given the time frame of Mark 11, it was not uncommon for people to seek a knob-like fruit called the takash uh, from the broadleaf displaying yet uh, too early for the fig-producing fig tree. So it was too early for that, and that's, that's what Jesus was looking for, that takash, right? And that could be true. Others suggest that Jesus did this just for the purpose of teaching uh, this lesson that he's going to teach. He was devising a parable. So he did it on purpose. Didn't expect to find any fruit there, but he was doing it to teach his disciples a lesson. I mean, I don't, I don't have any idea why he went out of season to look at it. I'd, I'd just be guessing. Uh, but either way, the, the result is the same. Jesus sees this as an opportunity 
to teach something to his disciples. And so he devises a lesson. He plans a lesson for his disciples. Now, Mark and Matthew record this event. Matthew condenses it down to one little thing and says, he, he saw the tree, no figs on it, he cursed it, and immediately it withered, right? Well, Mark tells us that immediately isn't like, like that. That immediately is over, uh, over a little bit of time, but not much. Mark tells us that there's a divide. And, but what he says to the tree after he doesn't find any fruit in it, he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. He speaks to the tree. And he says that to him. And so they move on to Jerusalem. He cleanses the temple. He does whatever he does on that day. He goes back home. It's the next morning now. And they're going to be met with a surprise. So we pick up the story in verse 20. Early in the morning as they were passing by. So this is the next morning after he's cleansed the temple. After he's already cursed the tree, if you would. You're passing by. As they saw the fig tree, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And the tree was dead. It was withered. It either had dropped all of its leaves or all of its leaves had turned brown and wrinkled or, you know, whatever. I mean, they recognized that the tree had withered and not just a branch Not just the top branches. You know, you have a tree that's got a branch that's withered and you know it's dead and you see it, but the rest of the tree is alive. No, they said from the roots up, this tree is dead. And they recognized that. A striking contrast from the, the morning before. And of course, Peter points it out. Now, most commentators tell us that Jesus is teaching two lessons with this story. One of them is going to be unspoken. One of them is going to be implicit. The other one is going to be explicit and, and fully explained, although I might take a little bit of exception with fully explained. But, but one of them is spoken and, and, and explicit. One of them is unspoken and implicit. And I'm going to take the implicit one first, the unspoken one first. And uh, the unspoken lesson that people suggest Jesus was teaching was this. It is possible to have an outward expression of religious faith but unfortunately lack the fruit of life. It is possible to have this outward look that you know God and have a relationship with God, but you lack uh, the fruit of true life. So it's on the morning that Jesus is on the way to cleanse the temple from thieves and robbers and and people who don't care about 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 faith or about God or about the first covenant. He's on his way to deal with them. And and they suggest that this tree is a metaphor of what Jesus is going to find when he gets to the temple. A, A temple with a lot of religious activity, but no real fruit. A lot of religious activity, but no real fruit. These Jewish people were in the temple claiming to love God, but they were desecrating the very place where God's presence dwelt. And so Jesus cursed the tree and it died. And and the the implicit picture is that that this is what God's going to do to Israel. That if Israel does not repent, if Israel does not turn from where they are and begin to walk again and bring forth the fruit of repentance, that God was going to cut them off, that God was going to dry them up, destroy them, if you would. 
And we see this kind of thought a whole bunch through the ministry of Jesus. So here's Jesus back in Mark 7. You remember this, quoting Isaiah? Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites, as it's written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. People claim to love God in Isaiah's day. People love, claim to love God in Jesus' day. Jesus quotes Isaiah, and he says, yeah, you claim to love me, but your heart is far, far from me. You have all the greeneries of outward religion, but the fruit of faith and love for God in your hearts, it's simply not there. You remember John the baptizer? He, baptized the, he was baptizing people. The Pharisees came to, them, to him, and this is what he said to them. When, you, when, you saw many, when, when he saw excuse me, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, John said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. Now listen, this is John. The axe is already at the root of the tree. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Bring forth fruit of repentance, he says. The ax is already at the root of the tree. Bring forth fruit of repentance or it will be cut down and thrown into the fire. The idea of cutting down this tree, I mean, it appears a, a number of times in Jesus' ministry. He taught a parable about a, uh, it was a fruit tree, but I don't remember if it was a fig tree or not or if it was just a vine. But anyway, uh, in this parable, he taught that the tree had no fruit after a number of years. And, uh, and the owner of the, of the vineyard or the fruit yard says that we presume that to be God the Father, says, cut it down. The vine dresser says, don't cut it down now. The vine dresser, probably the Holy Spirit. The vine dresser says, don't cut it down. Give me one more year to work with it. Give me one more year to till up around its roots. And if it doesn't bring forth fruit in that year, then we'll cut it down. The parable, the unspoken parable of the withered fig tree was that time was up. The unspoken lesson was that the fig tree was going to be dried up unless Israel repented and their temple would be destroyed. And that's exactly what would happen. Now, the clearly explained lesson, and uh, when I say clearly explained, I, I, I am mitigating that, is the importance of faith and forgiveness in prayer and even life. So in verse 22, Peter says, Lord, look at the tree. And Jesus replied to them, have faith in God. That's his answer, to look at the tree. Have faith in God. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Now, from the onset, I want to acknowledge that I find these words hard to understand. I mean, taken at face value, they seem to say that if I had enough faith, I could say to Mount Everest or Mount Kilimanjaro, go into the Atlantic Ocean, and they would get up and go into the ocean, right? Well, I've, I've never 
By the way, it's probably the Mount of Olives, and the, and the sea is probably the Mediterranean. Jesus probably points at the Mount of Olives, says, if you have enough faith, you can say to that mountain, go be thrown into the sea, some of the Mediterranean Sea most likely. But I've never seen anyone do any, anything like that. And, uh, and I have, but, but I have seen people pray with incredible faith, believing something so absolutely, and God doesn't do what they ask. God doesn't do what they ask. Though I will be quick to confess that there have been a few times when people have prayed ordinary prayers and God has done things that would seem like moving mountains, right? So I don't know exactly what Jesus means here. And what I mean by that is I don't believe that Jesus is trying to tell us or give us a formula whereby we can get something from God like he's a genie in heaven and we rub the genie with faith and we can get whatever whatever we want. I, I don't believe that's what he's saying. And so how do I, how do we understand the absoluteness of these words? Everybody tracking with me? All right. How, how do we understand those? And, and I tell you, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people that offer interpretations to this. In other words, you know, some Christians say, well, if it doesn't happen, it's because you lack the faith. It's always you don't have enough faith if it didn't happen, whatever you asked for. I, I just, I have a hard time with that one. I don't, I don't really think that's true. Uh, other people have suggested all kinds of ways of mitigating this. One suggestion that, uh, that I have some degree of appreciation to or for would some people say that this is not something meant for all of us. This is something meant for those apostles of that time. They could ask for anything. And if they asked for anything in faith, God would do it for them, including the moving of mountains into the, into the ocean. So, and by the way, moving of mountains is an idiom. We were talking about this this morning. Uh, you know, it's raining cats and dogs. It doesn't ever rain a cat or a dog out of the sky, right? So that's an idiom. This was also an idiom for in Israel, uh, the phrase moving mountains. And, and so I don't think we necessarily have to look at this as literally moving a mountain into the ocean. Uh, that's an idiom of something really hard happening. Um, so the thought is that when the disciples prayed, whether it was for the healing of a blind person, for the raising of the dead, anything they asked for in faith, God would do it for them. I mean, that solves some of the problem that I don't see this, I don't see this being reality in all of our lives all the time. That would solve that, some of that. So there's so many suggestions out there. So you know what I'm going to do right now? I'm going to punt. I'm going to punt. You know what that means? You can't move the ball down any further, and so you punt it away. I'm going to punt it to you guys and say, if you'd like to figure it out, go on Google, type in, what does Mark chapter 11, verse 22 to 24 mean? And you will find all kinds of suggestions, and you can pray, say, God, help me, help me figure out what that means, because I, I don't know. But however, I believe there are two very clear lessons that Jesus teaches us here, okay? The specifics of how these work together, you go figure that out. But here are the two lessons that are, that are explicit that God, Jesus teaches us. And it is this, faith is how we please God. Faith is how we please God. When Peter says, look at the tree, Jesus says, have faith in God. The lesson here is how not to be a fruitless tree. You know how to not be a fruitless tree? It's to have faith in God. 
to put your faith and your confidence in him. And I want to be clear. Jesus isn't telling us put faith in faith. He's saying put faith in God. And what is the faith in God that you should put? Here's what it is. You should put faith in God that he exists. In fact, without believing he exists, you can't please him. So start there, right? But believing that God exists, here's some other things to put your faith in God in. Believe that he's involved in your life. That he knows what's going on in your life. That none of your problems are somehow he's, he's out to lunch or on vacation. He's involved in your life. Have faith that God really loves you. And that he hasn't forgotten you. That he's going to be with you till the very end. That he actually genuinely cares about you and your problems. Have faith in his ability to intervene in your life. Have faith in the fact that he does intervene in our lives. Like I said, the absoluteness of what Jesus said, I, I've never experienced that. I've never seen that in anyone's life, that anything they ask for and everything they've ever asked for, God always does. I've never seen that. But I also don't want us to swing the pendulum to the other side where we, we forget that God has ability and God is involved in our life. And so we pray to him to be involved in our life and to, and to move in our lives when we need him to move that mountain. We're praying and saying, God, move this mountain for me. Jesus once told a bunch of men, he said, if you know, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does God know how to give you the Holy Spirit, give you good gifts for the things that you ask? And uh, so Paul points this out several times, that righteousness comes by faith. We're declared to be the sons and daughters of God because of our faith in God. Hebrews says we can't please God without faith. Abraham was righteous by faith. I mean, it's all about faith. Don't miss the clarity of this lesson that Jesus taught with the fig tree. Without faith, we can't please God. So put your faith in God. And here's the second lesson that's really clear from Jesus' teaching, and is that unforgiveness to others is an affront to God. Verse 25, whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. But if you don't forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your wrongdoing. So again, I, th- th- here's this balance. We don't earn Jesus' kingdom by forgiving others. In other words, God doesn't say, well, I'm going to let you into my kingdom because you're willing to forgive. It's not that. We, we're, we become part of his kingdom because of faith, not forgiveness. Okay? But then so often God says, but if you will not forgive, you are at odds with God. If you will not forgive, God will not forgive you. Jesus says to his men, don't stand praying with an unwillingness to forgive. If you want God to hear your prayers, then you forgive others and be willing to forgive others. Jesus talked about this a great deal. I mean, this isn't just a one and done. This isn't the only time he brings up forgiveness. He brought it up a lot, so much so that on one occasion, Peter and I know you know all this, but one Peter says, Lord, how many times should I forgive? Seven times seven? You know, and, and was that seven times? And Jesus said, no, seven times 70. And, and as I say all the time, he's not limiting it to 490. He's making it a point that we're, as long as people are repentant and seeking a forgiveness, we are to be a forgiving people and we are to forgive he told a parable right after that of a, of a king who forgave a man an insurmountable amount 
of money. He could never have paid it back. And the guy begs him. The king says, I have mercy on you. I forgive you. That guy goes out, finds a guy who owes him just a little bit of money and throws that guy in prison until he can pay him back. When the king learns what the man did, he brings him back in and he says, you're going to prison. You ain't ever coming out until you pay every dime of it. And I'm not trying, I don't want us to make too much of all the details of these things. I'm simply saying that the lesson that is really clear here for us is that unforgiveness on our behalf is an affront to the God who loves us. And being unwilling to forgive others, it puts you at odds with the God who forgave you. In fact, Jesus, when he taught us to pray, he said, pray like this, forgive us our debts as, or for, is that it? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You know, the implication is, The same way we forgive, forgive us. So the lesson of the withered fig tree that is explicit is have faith in God. And number two, be a forgiving person. So that brings me to the the last thing, which is uh, the the takeaways or or what, what do you think God wants you to do in response to today? Because remember, remember Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, right? Uh, teaching them to observe all, to do everything Jesus has commanded us. So, you know, I know I'm on this kick and maybe it'll go away one day. I don't know. I hope not. I really want to walk away from our engagement in the word of God with, here's what I should do in response to this. So I got, I got a couple of, I will thoughts for you this morning. Here's the first one. Uh, I will walk away this morning and I will examine my life for fruit. You say, well, what's the fruit? Remember, remember we talked about having the outward leaves of religion, but not the fruit, right? So what is the fruit that God is looking for? Well, for one is to love God with all your heart and to love people, right? But I think we can also say that the fruit that God's looking for is the fruit of his spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, what was that last one? Gentleness. Gentleness. I'm deaf too. Examine your life for fruit this week. Do you have the fruit? Do you have fruit of really belonging to Jesus? Or do all you have... So, so, let, me, so let me give you an illustration of what I'm talking about. So you've got the outward leaves. You come to church. You pray before your meals. But your coworkers know you as a grouch and know you as angry and know you as vengeful and know you as, you know, as somebody they really don't like to be around because of how you are at work. You see, if if you've got that kind of fruit, I don't care what kind of outward expressions you have. I, I think, I think this whole lesson of the, of the tree of leaves with no fruit, I, I think you need to examine your life for fruit. And if you can get honest with yourself, if there, if there's not fruit or the fruit's not very good, I think this is where we need to sit back and say, God, please help me. Please help me bring forth fruit in keeping with my repentance and my relationship with you. Here's a second. Here's a second I will. God, I will grow my faith and my faithfulness. So do you know how to grow your faith and your faithfulness? Not a rhetorical question. How how might we grow? You guys speak up loud. I'm deaf. How might we grow our faith and our faithfulness? Is that what you just did? Yeah, we exercise it. I was supposed to let you talk, not do that. We exercise our faith. We, we act on faith. We, we trust God in places and we step out. We step out of the boat like Peter or we step out onto that 
uh, up on, the, on that piece of ice that we, you know, we step out and we obey the Lord and we're faithful to the Lord. And we're, that's how we grow our faith. You know, if I just stay in my little spot here and never stretch my faith, it's never going to grow. So stretch your faith. Be faithful to the Lord. Obey him. You know, listen to his voice. And the last one is, the last one's, I will forgive. And then I've got a, a line there. I will forgive. Who do you need to forgive? Seriously, who do you need to forgive? When you think of someone that you got odds against or someone that you have not forgiven, I mean, I'll bet you maybe some of you, when I said that, immediately there was a name that just showed up in your heart. You know, here's the takeaway. Jesus taught us to, to obey him. So if there's someone that you need to forgive, then this is the week. This is the time. This is, the, this is, this is that moment. Choose to forgive that person and then, uh, and then forgive them. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed.